This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? or like sort of understated or what. This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Good evening, one and all, and welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, uh, show number 148, if I'm to believe the sheet there, Jed. No, it's 149. Ah, it's a typo. What a great way to start. (laughs) I told you I was busy today. That's fine. Okay, what a roaring start we're off to. Indeed, Bush is my name, and I'm in the studio with Katie Dundas and Jed McCartney. Hello, dudes. Hello, dude. We have Lisa Howarden from TCL. So Lisa's a landscape architect and director at um, one of Australia's most acclaimed landscape architecture and urban design practices, Taylor Cullity Lithlian, which is also known as TCL. Hmm. I thought um, it was a Hobbit name when I heard Lithlian. Sorry. We, we just pronounce it Lethleen. Lethleen. But that's okay. Lethleen sounds interesting as well. I feel like it's a Scottish name and I think I've got it right. I think they came across <laughs> as a family of convicts hundreds of years ago, so it's quite possible. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> anyway, I'm sure he knows best. Um, so, yes, Lisa is work, works as a landscape architect, doing all types of projects, so things like botanic gardens, which we'll talk about tonight, um, state and national parks, bridges, Shanghai exhibitions, um, lots of stuff all over Australia and lots of global projects as well. And Lisa, you speak around Australia um, about landscape architecture, public realm, user experience. Um, And in 2017, you were a finalist in the Women's Agenda Emerging Leaders Awards. Well done for that. And welcome to Green in the Apocalypse. Thanks for having me, guys. No worries. So tonight we're going to chat a little bit about one of your recent projects, which is the Bendigo Botanic Gardens, um, specifically about some of the planting that you've chosen for those gardens in light of a changing climate and a changing condition. But I thought it might be interesting to just tell us a little bit about what landscape architecture is first. Sure. It's a question that I often get asked and it often gets confused when you introduce yourself as a landscape architect and people think, oh, you you do backyards. And I go, "Mm, not really. We work on a much larger scale than that. So... But typically, landscape architecture is the public realm. So it is waterfronts, botanic gardens, civic plazas, cultural institutions. We're doing a lot of university work at the moment, so it's creating educational spaces. So really, if you uh, look at it, you can almost say that we we create the world that people operate and experience and live in um, because it is everything outside the building that we have an opportunity to influence as landscape architects. The space between the buildings. That's right. Mm. I'm also a landscape architect, I must admit. There's lots of us sprinkled around doing all kind of different jobs. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. It's very diverse. Is that how you would have defined it also, Katie? Was that a good definition? Uh, 
no, I guess I work more in planning now. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's it just... It covers many facets. Mm. Sorting out the city, making sure everyone can live well and mm. happily. So as an outsider to, to the trade... Uh, what would say? How would you would you be able to paint a different picture of landscape architecture, say fifty years and a hundred years ago, to what we have now? Because it would seem to me, from the outside looking in, that the one of the roles of landscape architecture these days, and it's interesting that you guys have done a botanical gardens, but maybe trying to bring the natural world back into the built environment, the urban environment, and the metropolis, is that would I mean is that even a more focused area of the of um, the craft than it was maybe? when you guys were going through tertiary study and first came into the trade? or I think it hasn't changed hugely since I started and was studying. I think it's become more prominent in Australia. So when I started studying in the early 2000s, it was about um, a lot of the big European companies um, were very prominent in landscape architecture and in Europe it was a thing and people knew what landscape architects were. Mm. In Australia it was not quite as obvious and effectively what um, it's it's stemmed from is the gardener which has turned into more of a profession as a landscape architect. Mm. I think if you start to look back hundreds of years though, there were people effectively um, doing landscape architecture but not calling themselves that, you know, the planning of Versailles Gardens, for example, is landscape architecture. Mm. And I think any of us would dream to do a job like that today. But they were city planners, they were garden planners, they were estate planners and effectively doing that role. And I think we probably have more of a focus on the public now as opposed to, you know, creating for the rich and famous. And I think that that's probably something that's a nice shift is about, as Kate was saying, designing for people Mm. and designing the experience of you know, what it is to live within a city these days. Yeah. So how do you engage with that public? Because, I mean, they're going to be the end user mm. or, or not even not the end user, the ongoing user. So how do, how do you approach them, like, on any given project, being that you do the waterfronts or the plaza? I mean, what's that, what's that first step there? Uh, it's generally stakeholder engagement. So depending on the project, we consult with clients, user groups. Um, they can be vast and many. They can involve... Uh, very general public consultation sessions Mm. or more targeted specific ones. It really depends on the project um, and the scope of of what it is that we're doing. But often we will spend on projects a couple of days at the start um, just talking to people, getting them to come in, tell us what they value about a place, things that they would like to have happen, things that they've got on their wish list. Um, so it's it's trying to understand, you know, what is missing from a place, what is really valued, and then how you can try and bring that all together. Yep. And have you noticed your work changing recently to think more about adapting to a changing climate? So thinking about making sure places are cool and comfortable, protecting people from heat, protecting people from inundation and water, um, creating adaptive environments. Is that something that's changed of your, your notice, I noticing think it's, a shift. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if it's changed as such, but it certainly is more a prominent discussion in everything that we do. And I mean, particularly when you're designing around the city, and I'm sure you've got experience with this, with rising sea levels, there's now minimum heights that you can set buildings at. And that is starting to create huge challenges with trying to interface with the built environment when your entries to your buildings are set a metre and a half above your street level. And that's probably one of 
the biggest, most tangible impacts from a physical perspective and how we deal with that. And then with for example, the Bendigo Botanic Gardens, that was very much a focus on the changing climate because Bendigo, being a regional city, has even vaster climate changing than what we do in our cities. Mm. So really starting to look at what the impact is of that. And yes, shade is a, a huge issue as we get really hot summers, as our sun burns us when you're outside for more than 15 minutes. People don't want to be outside in the sun and trees take a long time to grow. They really do. Mm. They really do. <laughs> <laughs> the two best days to plant a tree are 20 years ago and, and today, I guess. So one of, I guess one of the other things that um, uh, I've been thinking a bit about this lately in relation to climate change and, and resource depletion and a general grab bag of all sorts of things that are coming down the pipeline at us, um, and one of those is mental health, and it's a big one. And so I wonder, I mean, and it's, it's something that we're really and I don't want to speak out of term because I'm not expert in it by any means, but we're much more aware of mental health issues now than I think we ever have been collectively. So to what degree does that play into the designed urban landscape and city landscape? It's an interesting point because what we have found is that scientific studies are actually proving that green spaces improve mental health. Mm. So from our perspective, adding any green in is going to be of benefit. Mm. And we've done a little bit of work in hospital institutions as well and, and testing that. And there is proven data that if people have a view to greenery from their hospital room, that they are actually going to be healing quicker than if they're facing a brick wall. Yeah. So when you start to look at statistics like that, you start to then place a physical and um, tangible value on what greenery can do. Mm. And, you know, Parks Victoria have got the healthy parks, healthy people um, type motto. But again, it's proven experience that people walking through green spaces, it's not only encouraging activity, but they are also relaxing in that green environment that they're, you know, able to de-stress from the city life and those sorts of things. So it certainly does impact on mental health and I think as we become more aware of it we need to make sure that there are spaces and different types of recreational spaces that people can use mm. in different um, environments in different moods um, and obviously different seasons as well yeah. I remember reading an article I think I've spoken about it before about how your eyeballs need complexity to mm. make you stimulated and happy so if you think about being in the city and seeing straight lines and buildings and windows and mm. uh, and geometry compared to the complexity of layering of vegetation and all of the different colours and shades and movement and shapes. Exactly. So very different. Yeah. Yeah. So to get that complexity, we need some trees. Plant them 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, what... what we're, I mean, we're going to keep coming back to um, the idea of planning uh, around climate change and things like that tonight. But another thing that I wanted to maybe touch on was um, plant and seed security and stuff. And, and can we just quickly talk about your involvement in the National Arboretum up at Canberra? And I think it's, a, it's even worth touching on that more broadly, but you're involved in some ways? I was. Uh, it was a very big project in our office. So I was involved in the very first stage of the competitions, which was back in 2005, uh, which obviously secured the job for us. And then we were all sort of involved throughout the office um, mm. in the 10 years that it took to document and, and deliver the project. And it is. So, I mean, the basic premise of the Arboretum is that we've got the 100 forests and they are rare and endangered species from around the world. And effectively, it's in, Can in Canberra. Just oh, sorry, yes, yeah. the National Arboretum in Canberra. Yeah. 
And what we've developed there is that the forests are complete forests. So often you'll see arboretums around the world will have collections of single species of trees. Mm. And what we decided when we were developing the design of the forests was we're trying to work out how far you walk to get into a forest before you feel fully immersed within that environment. And that is effectively what set up the grid for how we determined the distances between each of the um, the alleys, which are the the open spaces between each forest. So each one of them is based on that different distance. And then effectively, they are all single species forests. So what that does is it not only gives somebody a sense of what that forest would feel like if it was a full forest in nature, but it also then has that seed security because there's a mass of them which becomes a critical mass for them to be able to survive and thrive Mm. and then self-replicate and we can collect seeds from them in the future as well. But they're single species forests. Each one is, yes. So is there any that are like a mixed woodland that you'd get more likely in nature? There's probably a couple that would have one or two varieties of the species, but the majority of them are single species, Mm. yeah. Mm. So it was less about recreating um, a natural environment or occurrence of that species and more about creating a mass of that one particular variety. Mm. Yeah, I found it so prone as I am to nihilism at times or nihilistic (laughs) thoughts. um, When I think about something like the National Arboretum Project, which is got trees in it that kind of won't reach, uh, well, they won't reach germination stage for their seeds. Well, I don't know, it's 40, 50, 100, 200 years. Some of these things won't reach maturity for several lifetimes. And so back to that mental health thing, I think for myself when I consider the the perspective and and long-range thinking that's involved in a project like that, you can't help but feel a bit better for it. I kind of... Those nights where you lie awake and think, oh, what's the point of anything? Well, then you realise that there's actually a hell of a lot of people out there who are going, no, there's very much a point mm. to it all mm. and here's how we're... Because, I mean, it, it, I don't know, it, there's there's a, a, a double-edged sword to this kind of thing, isn't there? On the one hand, we're planting out, you know, down here in Australia, a whole bunch of species from all over the world to ensure their survival. So you kind of go, well, why is that? Because their survival threatened. But then at the same time, you have to take a positive perspective on that where you can i mean so how how to what degree i guess what i'm getting at to what degree has something like that arboretum got a long succession plan put into it like because you guys have designed it implemented it over what sounds like about 13 years um but what's the documentation look like for that going forward like what sort of you know seed raising seed saving programs are written into that as well yeah that's a good question i probably can't answer the detail on that but we worked very closely with the arboretum as an organisation and they now have full control over that. And so they would have mechanisms in place both to maintain the trees so that, you know, you're clipping them up at the right times, Mm. that some of them would be planted in much greater densities than they should be. So when they get to a certain age, you thin out those trees as well. And then also um, plans to start to take the seeds. And I believe the visitor centre has a seed bank included as part of that. So Mm. then they would start to gather those seeds and put them in. So I suppose in a sense they are acting as a conservation institution which has its own set of parameters and the fact that they're calling themselves an arboretum means that they have certain things that they need to do to comply with 
that status, I guess, if yeah. you like. Yeah. yeah. The uh, English oaks there were propagated from acorns from the oldest exotic tree in the Canberra region. Really? That's pretty cool, isn't it? There you go. The cork oak forest there, um, there was a remnant cork oak forest, which is amazing because if you look at the photos of it, it's been harvested up to a certain point, which is what they do with cork, and then the trunks just change colour completely. So you have this datum line of these harvested trunks and then natural trunks above a certain line. Wow. It's very cool. Yeah, it's a seriously good and, it, and I have to confess that when I went to Canberra a few years ago to visit my brother, I was far more impressed by the city generally than I thought I would be, but the Arboretum itself uh, blew my mind in fact. Mm, there's uh, tens of thousands of trees being planted, it's pretty epic. Yes, well, it, it is. is. It's actually nice to see some long term thinking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. And we are here chatting to Lisa Howard about planting and planning and landscape architecture and climate change and all sorts of things. Trees. Um, But we're now going to have a chat about the new Botanic Garden in Bendigo. Um, I've done a little bit of research on botanic gardens and what they mean. There's heaps of little ones all across Australia. You just kind they of are, come they're upon scattered them. scattered everywhere. Heaps in Victoria. Used to be called the Garden State on our little car licence plates. Oh, that now is it's true, true. the state to be. Yeah, or mm. something Edu- the place like Education, oh, edu- other place to be. No, it keeps changing. The yeah. education state. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll get to the point where it says, like, Victoria, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all the things. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, so I found a little uh, description of the history of botanic gardens online. I thought I'd read it out. So the earliest botanic gardens evolved from physic gardens, so they grew medicinal herbs, usually attached to universities or societies of apocotheries. By the end of the 18th century, the economic potential of plant introduction and acclimatisation became an important aspect of their role. During the 19th century, with the rise in gardening as a leisure activity, we see the scientific and economic role blended with the aesthetic and the love of the exotic in the gardens of Britain and European countries and their colonies. And this was also a time for educating the common man and botanic gardens were seen to have a significant role in this regard. Now, what's the role, do you think, now, Lisa, of botanic gardens? I think they've shifted again and what we see now is botanic gardens are for people and it is certainly about how we get people to connect with plants. And I think... What people like to be able to do is to go to a botanic garden and see something that they can have takeaway messages and work out something that they like in there, take it home, put it in their own gardens. And so it is still very much an education purpose, but it's also about um, making it a place for events and experiences as well. So people return to the botanic garden um, on a daily basis or a weekly basis Botanic gardens now run events um, in their grounds as well. And so it's it's much more of a, a public open space as opposed to a scientific research centre. And do you think they still have a scientific role to play in experimenting with different types of planting? Absolutely. And I think that is the benefit that we get with botanic gardens is that the organisations that run them are prepared to take risks because they do still have a scientific purpose, even though they branch beyond that to the people experience. And they start to then look at ways that they can, you know, test new species or test combinations of new species. Um, 
I don't know if we want to talk about the Bendigo one just yet, but effectively we've got um, six or seven different types of turf growing there at the moment and some of them might fail and some of them might be a great success but that's part of the fun and so what's the reason for growing all those different types of turfs it's basically a test to see what's going to succeed best use the least amount of water and look the greenest in the majority of the seasons um, up at that climate so that it you know, stays green during the summertime and you don't have to overwater it, but that it also doesn't die off in the wintertime. So there's um, they were working with some um, turf consultants to do that and we've got a turf supplier that actually kind of sponsored those turf plots and it'll really be about seeing, you know, what succeeds and what doesn't and the things that don't succeed, they can just pull them out and put something else in in place. Mm. And has that been the case with all the types of planting? It's been... Tell me about the types of species that you've chosen and why and what's different about them. Okay, so effectively the Bendigo Botanic Gardens is split into three sections. So we've got what we're calling the international biome, the Australian biome, and then we have in the centre of the whole thing the fun and fantasy lawn. And this is a combination of both the Australian and the international so that's how the overall structure is set up of the garden and basically it was designed so that we were looking at what the future of Bendigo's climate was going to be. So we already know that Bendigo's climate is much harsher than Melbourne's. It has much hotter summers and they get much frostier and colder in the winters and they also get even less rainfall than we do here and when it comes, it comes in great deluges like we're starting to experience in Melbourne as well. So basically we were looking for highly durable plants that could survive the extreme heat, not die off when the frosts came through and also be able to survive on very little water and then be completely inundated with water as well. So it's a pretty tough call for a plant. Um, So basically what we did was looked at areas around the world, basically the lines of latitude effectively, to see what other species around the world from different continents grow in conditions like Bendigo is now and like Bendigo will become. So you effectively end up with these um, little lines of um, areas in South America and South Africa and then also up um, through India and the south of China to try and see what works in that sort of condition. And it's not quite a desert condition, but it's, it's getting close to that now. Did you have a lot to choose from? We've got surprisingly a large number of species in there. You might think that it's very restricted, but when you consider of all the different taxonomy of plants across the world, um, there's so many hundreds of thousands of them that we still ended up with a really vast selection. And there are a lot of succulents in there, um, in the international biome, and... We have the world's ugliest plant in there that we've put in the fun and fantasy. What is um, it? Oh, I should have looked that up before I came. If you type the world's ugliest plant, plant, it'll come up. Uh, It is a type of a succulent. It's actually not quite as ugly as... um, Oh, it looks dead. It does look kind of dead. It's kind of a big droopy succulent type plant. I'm trying to find the name of it. Sounds like someone's trying to describe like a friend that betrayed them there. To... I know, it's, it's terrible, isn't it? Well, wi- well, witch, yeah. 
That's the one. Is that the one? Yeah, it's not even a very good name. So it looks like, a, is, it looks like a, a dead aloe. I know. It's it's kind of sad and <laughs> drippy. kind of looks like it's dehydrated. It looks like it's washed up on the shoreline. In yeah, a really a bit of storm. seaweed or something. A bit of drippy seaweed. Hey, yeah. To, well, I was just thinking about you because this Bendigo Botanical Gardens project, one of the other things to consider is that baseline you were starting from where Bendigo as the former centre of the universe during the gold rush the soils there are denuded and they're washed out and mm. where they weren't directly, you know, mined bare for gold, they've probably had a whole heap of washout from mines hit them. Yes. Quite broadly across the city. Um, was, there, was there any other consideration within the design, sort of the introduction of deep-rooted grasses and other sort of things that could establish like per- long-term perennials for you know, carbon sequestration, soil repair and things like that did that come into consideration not for the main part of the botanic garden itself um so there are two sections of the botanic garden um one which is not yet built which is part of the display gardens Mm. and that one looks a little bit more into um food production and looking at yes taking carbon out of the soil and and all of that sort of stuff uh most of the soil for the botanic garden itself this first stage was imported because yep. we needed to make sure the plants were going to get the best possible um, opportunity for survival. The focus on the first part was really about the climatic conditions yeah. and giving people who were visiting the garden an opportunity to see what other options they had for their own backyards at home mm. that wasn't necessarily a dry native garden and wasn't necessarily just a succulent garden. Yeah. Um, so how you start to combine interesting plants and plants that you might not consider um, surviving in those sorts of conditions usually. Yeah. I've, I've um, subscribed for years to the Diggers Club and um, <clears throat> their oh, what, director, godfather, I'm not sure what you call Clive Blazy, former guest of the show as well, but he has uh, quite adamantly said over the, the years that he no longer rates eucalypts as a good backyard plant and he, mm. a lot of the time he talks about um, introduced species as a better choice for the backyard in Australia to cool the house to, um, to you know, and other, they often talk about things like miscanthus and some of the C4 plants for sequestering carbon back into soil and things like that so um, I guess one of the things that we need to put aside when we look at um, our planned our planted environment around our house and public and so forth is we need to actually act in a a fairly compromised way. We need to really remove ourselves from this weird 1970s idea of the maintenance-free dry native garden. But we we also, I guess, need to look long-term to how are we going to protect houses and infrastructure and all that sort of stuff, possibly with plants and and those sorts of things, and how are we going to bring life life back into these areas. So, I mean, as part of a part of the design consideration do, do the wildlife corridors and things start to fit into the modern botanical garden far more in the design yeah definitely i think um wildlife corridor corridors and how you connect to existing mm. um areas i mean in in bendigo we have the creek corridor that yep. runs adjacent to it so how that starts to influence the creek corridor mm. um is very important i'm um, i was just thinking when you were talking about you know, the, the role of natives in the 70s native garden. <laughs> yeah. The Australian garden at Cranbourne, which is our project as well, yeah. um, that was really part of looking at changing the perception of Australian yeah. natives uh, into, yes, they're a lot more fun and they're not just strappies and they're not just yeah. dry, scratchy plants and those sorts of things. Tinder boxes full of built-up kindling. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that really demonstrates the variety and the amount of lushness you can actually get in Australian natives. Yeah. And I think 
um, that that's still a little bit of a misconception. Um, the Bendigo Botanic Gardens has a lot of eucalypts in it yep. and we do have a lot of diverse species of that, but we've also got colitris, which are like a pine species. Yep. So you start to get a sense that there's a really great variety of plants that you can use. Yeah. Um, drawn drawn from all over the place. I mean, I guess, I guess exactly. what I, was, I should yeah. have finalised that thought there was that, that compromising creating wildlife corridors specifically. Um, means you, you you won't necessarily succeed in returning completely indigenous flora to an mm. area. It might not even be um, native Australian flora that you return, but at, at the end of the day, if you can get something that's going to survive and also provide that habitat and that, that corridor for wildlife, well, we can argue for the win there, can't we? I think we can. I mean, I think ultimately any green is good green, as long mm. as it's not a weed species. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, when is a weed a weed? When is a weed a weed? It's only when you don't want it there. So um, it's it's an interesting one. Yeah. Well, I mean, during the early days of the botanical gardens being developed in Victoria, which is kind of that was back when um, the, the well-heeled gentry were participating in the like the plant collection Olympics, you know, going all over the world, and, and that's when yes. we saw the wonderful introduction of blackberries and English ivy and all manner of things that we're never going to uh, get rid of now. So we need to work with them somehow, don't we? You are listening to a Triple R podcast. Podcast, etc. <laughs> so we were just talking about the Bendigo Botanic Gardens mm. um, and the different species that you chose to plant there based on Bendigo's predicted future climate. Yes. Um, did you learn anything in doing that and in the variety of plants that you chose for the gardens? Um as lessons learned for what might end up in our streets and in our public spaces? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think we probably will see lessons learned to come, um, but I'm not sure that we we have learned them all just yet. Um, we spent a lot of time with Paul Thompson, who's our, our plant guru, working through the planting pallets. And I think what was interesting about the way we ended up structuring the garden was we've drawn parallels through the garden in the international and the Australian section to try and compare almost like-for-like plants. So where there's an international pine tree, we've also replicated and said, well, here's an Australian version of something like that as well. So I think what that's going to start to tell us is when we start to look at some of the deciduous trees that we've got in the international gardens, how are they performing compared to the Australian trees that are obviously indeciduous. Um, so, you know, what what is going to be thriving well? A lot of the trees species are not that big at the moment, so we'll get to see what grows quickly in that sort of challenging climate, um, what provides the most shade in the most efficient manner of time as well. But I think also it's going to start to produce these really interesting microclimates there and that will then start to help us understand how things work underneath that too. Mm. So in terms of, you know, an, an outlook to the future, we have got fruiting trees in the Botanic Garden as well and I think, you know, Bushy, I know you're interested in permaculture and mm. things. Mm. With City of Melbourne's urban um, biodiversity policies mm. and the urban forest ideas... I think we're going to start to see more of that happening yeah. in our streets and start seeing, you know, what are our hardy fruiting plants that we can start to bring 
into the urban environment, um, both for diversity but also then, you know, for the neighbours to, to go and pluck lemons off the trees in the future. So I think, I don't know, I'm probably rambling a bit on that one. How, um, <laughs> how, um, how, how sort of ruthless are you if you think you got that wrong? So you, you sat down, you've planned a, a garden mm. and you've put all these species in. If you get, you know, five years in and it's just not working, like the, the things you thought would grow are not growing and, um, I mean, because you want this to be sort of visually pleasing for the yes. public. Yes, If it, put it bluntly, if it looks too. like crap, how ruthless are you guys at going, well, that didn't work, we'll redesign and replant? Or yeah, well, persist? there's probably a twofold thing there. So... One, if you've seen any pictures of the Bendigo Botanic Garden, it's extremely graphic. Mm. So it basically looked pretty good with nothing in it at mm. all. Uh, and the idea with that is that the structure of it's fairly robust then so that it it still looks like a pretty neat design even if some of the plants start oh. to fail. So that's the first thing. The second one, uh, we've actually already had the garden substitute some plants out that we had specified there. So one of the original ideas was to have a citrus hedge which went around the promenade and it would be a mixed variety of different citrus plants, oranges, lemons, some really interesting things like pomelos and and other things that are not so commonly grown. And part of that was the idea that you would then challenge what a conventional hedge was and that you could hedge fruiting plants into this as well. And unfortunately, during the winter um, just gone, Bendigo had some really severe frosts. Mm. They had a grower who was growing a lot of the citrus plants for that hedge for them and the grower lost a lot of stock. Bendigo's nursery itself, all of their citrus was actually fine, which was great, but the garden staff did make the decision not to put the citrus into that hedge already. So we're hoping that we might be able to get a small section of it still swapped over um, so that they can trial that because I think it is important that we can give things a chance. Mm. And, you know, if, if a small portion of that hedge can be transformed into citrus and we see, let's see if it, it can actually grow. But ultimately, I think you've got to give things a couple of years. I think if um, certain areas started to fail en masse, you'd probably rethink them a little bit quicker. But if there's certain individual species, the nature of them having been transplanted from the nursery to the site and now they'll go through the winter effectively by themselves mm-hmm. um, this season, we might expect to see a little bit of failure. We might also um, be looking to recommend and work with the staff that some of them might just need to be covered a little bit. They might need to put up a little shade structure yeah. on top of them to it protect could go them. the other way. It could be like most gardens where people put in the little plants they get from the nursery mm. and they grow into big plants and suddenly the whole thing's just like... Yeah, and you've got to trim half of it back. <laughs> <jungle>. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. And, I mean, we... We always make sure we put in additional plants um, from what they'll need as final numbers. So you would anticipate that some of them will need thinning out uh, in the end. But also that's a bit of a 
a look thing too in terms of if you plant mm. things closer together, you, you get them growing up in a different form as if they were, you know, instead of being by themselves. Mm. And I guess in time as they become a larger canopy tree, you know, they'll mitigate the negative effects of frost and, exactly. and all those mm. sorts of things as well, so they should survive. We should quickly touch on that very important aspect of water. So mm. uh, Bendigo, as you were saying earlier, it's got a fairly challenging rainfall pattern. How does a, a um, experimental garden like this one cover the irrigation needs so it was designed to hold water more or tank it up and what's the go yeah we're actually um a couple of things on that one we're quite lucky that there's a recycled water main nearby that runs adjacent to the bendigo creek and so the bendigo city council negotiated with the water authority to be able to have a water source for that Mm. um so that's really great so we've got um, recycled water on tap effectively to irrigate the whole garden the other thing is that because of its proximity to the creek, we needed to make sure that putting the garden there wasn't going to affect the flood overflow because the garden area actually was um, in the flood path. So yeah, right. it was the flood line. And so the way the fun and fantasy lawn is designed is it's actually a holding basin for the water. Ah. So there's a there's a dirty big pit in the middle of the lawn, <laughs> which... Uh you know, it was a negotiation with the civil engineers at the time, but um, it does need to be there because when the creek floods to a certain level, it now surcharges into the Botanic Garden. Whoa. And so the fun and fantasy lawn, I don't, we might get to see it this winter, uh, will effectively become a lake for a small portion of time. Awesome. And then we've got a very specific blend of soil there which allows that to just really slowly drain back down to where it needs to be and that's you know obviously good for the turf because the the drainage then is is right for that so it'll absorb yeah. the water as it goes down through um and then it, it goes back into that water system again well, let's filter and clean it well those, mm. those types of changeable landscapes that accommodate water discharge water they serve different purposes over the year are going to become increasingly more important yes they as are flooding well storm surge and flooding from rain becomes a bigger um, and bigger issue. Every single year a bigger mm. issue, yeah. So our public spaces and botanic gardens and so forth will have to perform multiple functions. Yes. Not just recreation and leisure, but flood management as well. Absolutely. So it's interesting you... to see how that works and how the turf manages to survive. Exactly, and how you make sure the garden doesn't wash away yeah. when that happens. And mm. the use of turf generally. Yes. What are you, <laughs> um, what is your opinion on that as something which requires a lot of water and mowing and maintenance and oil input? I think the public benefit of turf somewhat outweighs uh, the maintenance requirements. So we often have this discussion with clients because it is something that often comes up. We we do include turf in quite a number of our projects. I personally can't stand fake turf. I think it is Blah. it is worse than asphalt um, because oh. it it heats up and it retains heat. And in summertime, you go on there and people think it's lawn and it's just radiating <laughs> heat at you. Um, so, you know, often we will get asked the question, oh, can't we put fake turf in instead of real turf? Uh, but the ecological benefits of having the turf. The turf actually provides a really cooling environment mm. there. And so in terms of choosing turf over gravel or concrete or even mulched garden beds, um, it's a usable space and 
people people do just love to sit on lawn mm. and they do feel cooler and better for sitting on lawn and it is lovely to look out onto. So most of our projects now, if we do put lawn in there, we make sure that we've got an irrigation source. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.